Part One, Chapter One of Dawn of All by Robert U. Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The first objects of which he became aware were his own hands, clasped on his lap before him, and the cloth cuffs from which they emerged. And it was these latter that puzzled him. So engrossed was he that at first he could not pay attention to the strange sounds in the air about him. For these cuffs, though black, were marked at their upper edges with a purpled line such as prelates wear. He mechanically turned the backs of his hand upwards, but there was no ring on his finger. Then he lifted his eyes and looked. He was seated on some kind of raised chair beneath a canopy. A carpet ran down over a couple of steps beneath his feet, and beyond stood the backs of a company of ecclesiastics, secular priests in Cata, Cassock, and Baretta, with three or four barefooted Franciscans, and a couple of Benedictines. Ten yards away there rose a temporary pulpit, with a back and a sounding-board beneath the open sky, and in it was the tall figure of a young friar, preaching, it seemed with extraordinary fervor. Around the pulpit, beyond it, and on all sides, to an immense distance, so far as he could see, stretched the heads of an incalculable multitude, dead silent, and beyond them against trees, green against the blue summer sky. He looked on all this, but it meant nothing to him. It fitted on nowhere with his experience. He knew neither where he was, nor at what he was assisting, nor who these people were, nor who the friar was, nor who he was himself. He simply looked at his surroundings, then back at his hands, and down his figure. He gained no knowledge there, for he was dressed as he had never been dressed before. His caped cassock was black, with purple buttons and a purple cincture. He noticed that his shoes shone with gold buckles. He glanced at his breast, but no cross hung there. He took off his beretta nervously, lest someone should notice, and perceived that it was black, with a purple tassel. He was dressed, then, it seemed, in the costume of a domestic prelate. He put on his beretta again. Then he closed his eyes and tried to think, but he could remember nothing. There was, it seemed, no continuity anywhere. But it suddenly struck him that if he knew that he was a domestic prelate, and if he could recognize a Franciscan, he must have seen this phenomenon before. Where? When? Little pictures began to form before him as a result of his intense mental effort, but they were far away and minute, like figures seen through the wrong end of a telescope, and they afforded no explanation. But as he bent his whole mind upon it, he remembered that he had been a priest, he had distinct memories of saying Mass, but he could not remember where or when, he could not even remember his own name. This last horror struck him alert again. He did not know who he was. He opened his eyes widely, terrified, and caught the eye of an old priest in Cota and Cassock, who was looking back at him over his shoulder. Something in the frightened face must have disturbed the old man, for he detached himself from the group and came up the two steps to his side. What is it, Monsignor? he whispered. I am ill. Father, he stammered. The priest looked at him doubtfully for an instant. Can you, can you hold out for a little? The sermon must be nearly. Then the other recovered. He understood that at whatever cost he must not attract attention. He nodded sharply. Yes, I can hold out, father, if he isn't too long, but you must take me home afterwards. The priest still looked at him doubtfully. Go back to your place, father. I'm all right. Don't attract attention. 
only come to me afterwards. The priest went back, but he still glanced at him once or twice. Then the man who did not know himself set his teeth and resolved to remember. The thing was too absurd. He said to himself he would begin by identifying where he was. If he knew so much as to his own position and the dresses of those priests, his memory could not be wholly gone. In front of him, and to the right, there were trees beyond the heads of the crowd. There was something vaguely familiar to him about the arrangement of these, but not enough to tell him anything. He craned forward and stared as far to the right as he could. There were more trees. Then to the left, and here, for the first time, he caught sight of buildings. But these seemed very odd buildings, neither houses nor arches, but something between the two. They were of the nature of an elaborate gateway. And then, in a flash, he recognized where he was. He was sitting, under this canopy, just to the right as one enters through Hyde Park Corner. These trees were the trees of the park. That open space in front was the beginning of Rotten Row, and something lame. Park Lane, that was it, was behind him. Impressions and questions crowded upon him quickly now, yet in none of them was there a hint as to how he got there, nor who he was, nor what in the world was going on. This friar, what was he doing, preaching in Hyde Park? It was ridiculous, ridiculous and very dangerous. It would cause trouble. He leaned forward to listen, as the friar with a wide gesture swept his hand round the horizon. Brethren, he cried, look round you. Fifty years ago this was a Protestant country, and the Church of God a sect among the sects. And today, today God is vindicated and the truth is known. Fifty years ago we were but a handful among the thousands that knew not God, and today we rule the world. Son of man, can these dry bones live? So cried the voice of God to the prophet, and behold, they stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. If, then, he has done such things for us, what shall he not do for those for whom I speak? Yet he works through man. How shall they hear without a preacher? Do you see to it, then, that there are not wanting laborers in that vineyard of which you have heard? Already the grapes hang ready to pluck, and it is but we that are wanting. Send forth thy laborers into my vineyard, cries the Lord of all. The words were ill-chosen and commonplace enough and uttered in an accent indefinably strange to the bewildered listener. But the force of the man was tremendous, as he sent out his personality over the enormous crowd, on that high, vibrant voice that controlled, it seemed, even those on the outskirts far up the road on either side. Then, with a swift sign of the cross, answered generally by those about the pulpit, he ended his sermon and disappeared down the steps, and a great murmur of talk began. But what in the world was it all about? wondered the man under the canopy. What was this vineyard? And why did he appeal to English people in such words as these? Everyone knew that the Catholic Church was but a handful still in this country. Certainly, progress had been made, but... He broke off his meditations as he saw the group of ecclesiastics coming towards him, and noticed that on all sides the crowd was beginning to disperse. He gripped the arms of the chair fiercely, trying to gain self-command. He must not make a fool of himself before all these people. He must be discreet and say as little as possible. But there was no great need for caution at present. The old priest who had spoken to him before stepped a little in advance of the rest, and turning, said in a low sentence or two to the Benedictines. And the group stopped, though one or two still eyed, 
it seemed, with sympathy, the man who awaited him. Then the priest came up alone and put his hand on the arm of the chair. "'Come out this way,' he whispered. "'There is a path behind, Monsignor, and I have sent orders for the car to be there.' The man rose obediently. He could do nothing else, passed down the steps and behind the canopy. A couple of police stood there in an unfamiliar but unmistakable uniform, and these drew themselves up and saluted. They went on down the little pathway and out through a side gate. Here again the cry was tremendous, but barriers kept them away, and the two passed on together across the pavement, saluted by half a dozen men who were pressed against the barriers. It was here, for the first time, that the bewildered man noticed that the dresses seemed altogether unfamiliar. And up to a car of a peculiar and unknown shape that waited in the roadway, with a bareheaded servant in some strange purple livery, holding the door open. "'After you, Monsignor,' said the old priest." The other stepped in and sat down. The priest hesitated for an instant, and then leaned forward into the car. "'You have an appointment in Dean's Yard, Monsignor, you remember. It's important, you know. Are you too ill?' "'I can't, I can't,' stammered the man. "'Well, at least we can go round that way. I think we ought, you know. I can go in and see him for you, if you wish, and we can at any rate leave the papers.' "'Anything, anything, very well.' The priest got in instantly, the door closed, and the next moment, through crowds held back by the police, the great car, with no driver visible in front, through the clear glass windows, moved off southward. It was a moment before either spoke. The old priest broke the silence. He was a gentle-faced old man, not unlike a very shrewd and wide-awake dormouse, and his white hair stood out in a mass beneath his beretta. But the words he used were unintelligible, though not altogether unfamiliar. I... I don't understand, father, stammered the man. The priest looked at him sharply. I was saying, he said slowly and distinctly, I was saying that you looked very well, and I was asking you what was the matter. The other was silent a moment. How to explain the thing? Then he determined on making a clean breast of it. This old man looked kindly and discreet. I, I think it's a lapse of memory, he said. I've heard of such things. I, I don't know where I am, nor what I'm doing. Are you, are you sure you're not making a mistake? Have I got any right? The priest looked at him as if puzzled. I don't quite understand, Monsignor. What can't you remember? I can't remember anything, wailed the man, suddenly broken down. Nothing at all. Not who I am, nor where I'm going. Or where I come from. What am I? Who am I? Father, for God's sake, tell me. Monsignor, be quiet, please. You mustn't give way, surely. I tell you, I can remember nothing. It's all gone. I don't know who you are. I don't know what day it is, or what year it is, or anything. He felt a hand on his arm, and his eyes met a look of a very peculiar power and concentration. He sank back into his seat, strangely quieted and soothed. Now, Monsignor, listen to me. You know who I am, he broke off. I am Father Jervis. I know about these things. I've been through the psychological schools. You will be all right presently, I hope, but you must be perfectly quiet. Tell me who I am, stammered the man. Listen, then. You are Monsignor Masterman, secretary to the Cardinal, 
You're going back to Westminster now, in your own car. What's been going on? What was all the crowd about? Still the eyes are on him, compelling and penetrating. You've been presiding at the usual midday Saturday sermon, in Hyde Park, on behalf of the missions to the East. Do you remember now? No, well, it doesn't matter in the least. That was Father Anthony who was preaching. He was a little nervous, you noticed. It was his first sermon in Hyde Park. I saw he was a friar, murmured the other. Oh, you recognized his habit, then? There, you see, your memory's not really gone. And, and what's the answer to Dominus Vobiscum? Ecum spiritu tuo. The priest smiled, and the pressure on the man's arm relaxed. That's excellent. It's only a partial obscurity. Why didn't you understand me when I spoke to you in Latin, then? That was Latin? I thought so, but you spoke too fast, and I'm not accustomed to speak it. The old man looked at him with grave humor. Not accustomed to speak it? Monsignor! Why? He broke off again. Look out of the window, please. Where are we? The other looked out. He felt greatly elated and comforted. It was quite true. His memory was not altogether gone, then. Surely he would soon be well again. Out of the windows in front, but seeming to wheel swiftly to the left, as the car whisked around to the right, was the Victoria Tower. He noticed that the hour pointed to five minutes before one. Those are the Houses of Parliament, he said, and what's that tall pillar in the middle of Parliament Square? That's the image of the Immaculate Conception. But what did you call those buildings just now? Houses of Parliament, aren't they? faltered the man, terrified that his brain was really going. Why do you call them that? It is their name, isn't it? It used to be, but it isn't the usual name now. Good God, Father, am I mad? Tell me, what year is it? The eyes looked again into his. Monsignor, think, think hard. I don't know, I don't know. Oh, for God's sake. Quietly, then. It's the year 1973. It can't be, it can't be, gasped the other. Why, I remember the beginning of the century. Monsignor, attend to me, please. That's better. It's the year 1973. You were born in the year, in the year 1932. You are just forty years old. You are secretary and chaplain to the cardinal, Cardinal Bellairs. Before that you were rector of St. Mary's in the West. Do you remember now? I remember nothing. You remember your ordination? No. Once I remember saying mass somewhere. I don't know where. Stay. We're just there. The car wheeled in swiftly under an archway, whisked to the left, and drew up before the cloister door. Now, Monsignor, I'm going in to see the prior myself and give him the papers. You have them? I... I don't know. The priest dived forward and extracted a small dispatch box from some unseen receptacle. Your keys, please, Monsignor. The other felt wildly about his person. He saw the steady eyes of the old priest upon him. You keep them in your left-hand breast pocket, said the priest slowly and distinctly. The man felt there, fetched out a bundle of thin, flat keys, and handed them over helplessly. While the priest turned them over, examining each, the other stared hopelessly out of the window, past the motionless servant in purple, who waited with his hand on the car door, 
Surely he knew this place. Yes, it was Dean's Yard, and this was the entrance to the cloister of the Abbey. But who was the prior, and what was it all about? He turned to the other, who by now was bending over the box and extracting a few papers laid neatly at the top. What are you doing, father? Who are you going to see? I am going to take these papers of yours to the prior, the prior of Westminster. The abbot isn't here yet. Only a few of the monks have come. Monks? Prior? Father? The old man looked him in the eyes again. Yes, he said quietly. The abbot was made over to the Benedictines last year, but they haven't yet formally taken possession. And these papers concern business connected with the whole affair, the relations of seculars and regulars. I'll tell you afterwards. I must go in now, and you must just remain here quietly. Tell me again. What is your name? Who are you? I... I am Monsignor Masterman, Secretary to Cardinal Bellairs. The priest smiled as he laid his hand on the door. Quite right, he said. Now, please sit here quietly, Monsignor, till I come back. He sat in perfect silence, waiting, leaning back in his corner with closed eyes, compelling himself to keep his composure. It was, at any rate, good luck that he had fallen in with such a friend as this. Father Jervis, was it not? Who knew all about him, and, obviously, could be trusted to be discreet. He must just attend to his instructions quietly, and do what he was told. No doubt things would come back soon. But how very curious this all was about Hyde Park and Westminster. He could have sworn that England was a Protestant country, and the church just a tiny fragment of its population. Why, it was only recently that Westminster Cathedral was built, was it not? But then, this was the year 73, and and he could not remember in what year the cathedral was built. Then again the horror and bewilderment seized him. He gripped his knees with his hands in an agony of consternation. He would go mad if he could not remember, or at least, ah, here was Father Jervis coming back again. The two sat quite silent again for a moment as the car moved off. Tell me, said the priest suddenly, don't you remember faces or people's names? The other concentrated his mind fiercely for a moment or two. I remember some faces, yes, he said, and I remember some names, but I could not remember which faces belonged to which names. I remember, I remember the name Archbishop Bourne, and, and a priest called Farquharson. What have you been reading lately? Ah, oh, I forgot. Well, but can't you remember the Cardinal, Cardinal Bellairs? I've never heard of him nor what he looks like? I haven't a notion. The priest again was silent. Look here, Monsignor, he said suddenly. I'd better take you straight up to your rooms as soon as we arrive, and I'll have a notice put up on your confessional that you are unable to attend there today. You'll have the whole afternoon, after four at least, to yourself, and the rest of the evening. We needn't tell a soul until we're certain that it can't be helped, not even the cardinal, but I'm afraid you'll have to reside at lunch today. Uh, Mr. Manners is coming, you know, to consult with the Cardinal, and I think if you weren't there to entertain him. Monsignor nodded sharply, with compressed lips. I understand, but just tell me who Mr. Manners is. The priest answered without any sign of discomposure. He's a member of the government. He's the great political economist, 
and he's coming to consult with the cardinal about certain measures that affect the church. Do you remember now? The other shook his head. No. Well, just talk to him vaguely. I'll sit opposite and take care that you don't make any mistakes. Just talk to him generally. Talk about the sermon in Hyde Park and the Abbey. He won't expect you to talk politics publicly. I'll try. The car drew up as the conversation ended, and the man who had lost his memory glanced out. To his intense relief, he recognized where he was. It was the door of the Archbishop's house in Ambrosden Avenue, and beyond he perceived the long northern side of the cathedral. "'I know this,' he said. "'Of course you do, my dear Monsignor,' said the priest reassuringly. "'Now follow me. Bow to anyone who salutes you, but don't speak a word.' They passed in together through the door, past a couple of liveried servants who held it open, up the staircase, and beyond up the further flight. The old priest drew out a key and unlocked the door before them, and together they turned to the left of the corridor and passed into a large pleasant room looking out onto the street, with the further door communicating, it seemed, with a bedroom beyond. Fortunately they had met no one on the way. "'Here we are,' said Father Jervis cheerfully. Now, Monsignor, do you know where you are? The other shook his head dolorously. Come, come, this is your own room. Look at your writing table, Monsignor, where you sit every day. The other looked at it eagerly and yet vaguely. A half-written letter, certainly in his own handwriting, lay there on the blotting pad. But the name of his correspondent meant nothing to him, nor did the few words which he read. He looked round the room, at the bookcases, the curtains, the prédu, and again terror seized him. "'I know nothing, father, nothing at all. It's all new, for God's sake.' "'Quietly, then, Monsignor, it's all perfectly right. Now I'm going to leave you for ten minutes, to arrange about the places at lunch. You'd better lock your door and admit no one. Just look round the rooms when I'm gone. Ah!' Father Jervis broke off suddenly and darted at an armchair, where a book lay face downwards on the seat. He snatched up the book, glanced at the pages, looked through the title, and laughed aloud. "'I knew it,' he said. "'I was certain of it. You've got hold of Manor's history. Look, you're at the very page.' He held it up for the other to see. Monsignor looked at it, still only half comprehending, and just noticing that the paper had a peculiar look, and saw that the running dates at the top of the pages contained the years 1904 to 1912. The priest shook the book in gentle triumph. A sheet of paper fell out of it, which he picked up and glanced at. Then he laughed again. See, he said, you've been making notes of the very period, no doubt in order to be able to talk to manners. That's the time he knows more about than any living soul. He calls it the crest of the wave, you know. Everything dated from then, in his opinion. I don't understand a word. See here, Monsignor, interrupted the priest in mild glee. Here's a subject to talk about at lunch. Just get manners on to it, and you'll have no trouble. He loves lecturing, and he talks just like a history book. Tell him you've been reading his history, and want a bird's-eye view. Monsignor started. Why, yes, he said, and that'll tell me the facts, too. Excellent. Now, Monsignor, I must go. Just look round the rooms well, and get to know where things are kept. I'll be back in ten minutes, and we'll have a good talk before lunch, as to all who'll be there. It'll all go perfectly smoothly, I promise you. When the door closed, Monsignor Masterman looked round him slowly and carefully. 
he had an idea that the mist must break sooner or later and that all would become familiar once again it was perfectly plain by now to his mind what had happened to him and the fact that there were certain things which he recognized such as the cathedral and hyde park and a friar's habit and archbishop's house all this helped him to keep his head if he remembered so much there seemed no intrinsic reason why he should not remember more but his inspection was disappointing not only was there not one article in the room which he knew but he did not even understand the use of some of the things which he saw there was a row of what looked like small black boxes fastened to the right-hand wall about the height of a man's head and there was some kind of a machine all wheels and handles in the corner by the nearer window which was completely mysterious to him he glanced through into the bedroom and this was not better certainly there was a bed there was no mistake about that and there seemed to be wardrobes sunk to the level of the walls on all sides but although in this room he thought he recognized the use of everything which he saw there was no single thing that wore a familiar aspect he came back to his writing-table and sat down before it in despair but that did not reassure him he took out one or two of the books that stood there in a row directories and address books they appeared chiefly to be and found his name written in each with here and there a note or a correction all in his own handwriting he took up the half-written letter again and glanced through it once more but it brought no relief he could not even conjecture how the interrupted sentence on the third page ought to end again and again he tried to tear out from his inner consciousness something which he could remember closing his eyes and sinking his head upon his hands but nothing except fragments and glimpses of vision rose before him it was now a face or a scene to which he could give no name now a sentence or a thought that owned no context there was no frame at all no unified scheme in which these fragments found cohesion it was like regarding the pieces of a shattered jar whose shape even could not be conjectured then a sudden thought struck him he sprang up quickly and ran into his bedroom a tall mirror he remembered hung between the windows he ran straight up to this and stood staring at his own reflection it was himself that he saw there there was no doubt of that every line and feature of that keen pale professional-looking face was familiar although it seemed to him that his hair was a little grayer than it ought to be end of part one chapter one